Here we go. Screen Heat Miami. We have special edition. Special edition, baby. Miami is back. The world is coming slowly back to life. But this is a very special time right now, Kevin. It is. Um, It's really great to see the numbers go down in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone is really looking forward to getting rid of this cabin fever. So absolutely. I'm really happy about that. I'm also really happy that we have Black History Month. Yes, sir. My favorite months of the year. So we're celebrating Black History Month here at Screen Heat Miami with this very special episode. We have a great guest, one of my favorite new filmmakers, up and coming filmmakers, Alicia K. Harris. And we'll talk a little bit about her in a minute. But let's talk about ourselves first. That's right. I'm Kevin Sharpley. Who are we? I'm JL Martinez. And And this this is Green Heat Miami. Uh, Absolutely. And we are brought to you, as always, by the Miami Media and Film Market and... Kajik Multimedia. And Kamakol. And Cinevision. Oh, yeah. Bringing the heat every week from this point out. And so excited about our Black History Month special. Uh, Alicia is a talent. She is actually from Canada. And, of course, there is always a Miami connection. She actually won the best short film at last year's Miami Film Festival, which is one of our last big live events uh, just before the the lockdowns. And and she won for her short pick. Yes. I picked pick. You pick pick. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a judge at the Miami Film Festival. So the way it works is we whittle it down until there's there's the final three. And then we Mm -hmm. pick out of the final three and it's always contentious. And Mm. so I I champion pick as everything moves forward. And we're not allowed to say anything, of course, until they make the official announcements. But I met the director before they announced the winner. And boy, was it hard to keep a we're poker face. S- you were sworn to secrecy. But, you- <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting ride last year's festival, obviously. Uh, speaking of picking them, we do have a special guest today to talk about last week's guest, uh, who was, whose film was also at the Miami Film Festival last year. Uh, but, but as you may have remembered if you tuned in last week we had actor paul tay which has an interesting history not only as an actor based here in south florida but also as a drama teacher i believe he referenced a lot of his time teaching at um in different places but he was also a high school drama teacher at my alma mater uh, which i totally forgot at the time of the interview highly a senior high school but the one who did remember and another M, uh, MMFM and Screen Heat Miami and Miami Film Festival alumni, J.R. Poli, uh, the director of Marcus, who had its world premiere, did remember because that was his drama teacher. So we actually have J.R. Poli with us today to sort of color his experience on the world of Paul Tay. But I think that J.R. is going to have a couple of stories because yeah. we met Alicia at the same time. Yes, and, we did, and, and I think Jr. saw pick as well. So, yes, well, well, I'll I'll touch on the Paul Tay one first. I, you know, I'm on Instagram and I'm seeing your post of "Hey, catch this week's edition," and I immediately see Paul's face, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, that's Paul Tay." So I I text Jose. I'm like, Jose, tell me you talked about 
Paul being our drama teacher in high school. And he's like, what are you, what are you talking? He goes, oh, you know him? I'm like, what are you talking about? You know him? <laughs> he was in our high school. We graduated together. And he was, Jose, of course, was like, well, I didn't take drama. And my response was, oh, well, that's the excuse. That's that's the reason why your performance in Marcus was okay <laughs> and not awesome. <laughs> it, was, it was spectacular. And I did take drama at UM, by the way. So. Yeah. Well, you know, but but yeah, Paul was uh, our drama teacher, my drama teacher, at least in the 11th and 12th grade. Um, I think I learned more about directing than, than I did about acting because I'm a terrible actor. Um, yeah, just, you know what? That's funny. If When you listen to his episode, you'll see why. Yeah. So, no, so. I mean... It, it, it's crazy because I do remember going through all the, the, the warmups and all the stuff that, you know, the actors and he, I don't want to call him a method actor, but he, he gets into certain, you know, certain moods when he's, when he's performing and he's, he's uh, uh, going to act. So when it, being a part of that, I think helped me at least establish how to deal with actors back then at, a, at an early age. So I, I could attribute a lot of my, directing style and a lot of my uh my my um ex, you know the way i i treat actors to paul <laughs> from high school believe it or not before i even knew i wanted to be a director so i know a couple years later when i decided to go to school film school he was um he was you know in my head i guess you know when it came to actors that's but, great because we we had a conversation about you know being an actor's director and right. i come from in front of the camera too right. so there is a lot to be said about having that understanding and he recommended and I always recommended too that directors take an acting class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I, I also, I agree with that as well. I, I remember in school, he, it was funny cause he was uh, in, in the middle of, he would come out with a, he was one of the Bud uh, light commercial guys. He was actually in a swamp and the three frogs back in the nineties. with. The, oh, wow. He was in, he was, yeah. The, the, in one of those commercials and, and, he would walk into class and everybody would do the Budweiser. Um, <laughs> you know, we knew him from there. And he was always uh, a, a very, I want to say hip. I mean, guy, kind of guy, you know, he yeah. had his, his style. He had the tie always with the, you know, the, the tucked out shirt. And, you know, he introduced me to lots of bands that I still love today. For instance, Cake. The band Cake. Oh, yeah. So that was one of his favorites. But yeah, very, very cool guy. And, uh, you know, had a lot of, Detention time because of him. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, you got in a bit of a hot water with the cool. Always this really cool, you know, you figured liberal artsy guy that comes in and talks about Bud Light commercials, and somehow Jarrah winds up in detention. Always, man. <laughs> I, I think it was more because he was so cool that we became friends more than anything. So we would mock him, like not mock him in a bad way, but he had this way of of, of kind of speaking, like you know, he had a Nick Cage thing going, you know, you know, like. So we would just, you know, whenever we, you know, something would happen, we would just kind of go into a Paul impersonation. And that usually landed us in hot water. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think anyone would get a little bit miffed about yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. So but, uh, what about, tell me about Pick. Man, I tell you, I saw Pick uh, in one of the short blocks um, and it was at the same, the same block as T. Uh, which also won an award at Miami Film Festival and, all, and was on the shortlist or something. It was it was actually no? It won the Biennale. Yeah, correct. But the Berlin Film for, Festival for the Oscars. It was oh yeah, it was on the shortlist. You're right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, but I, I'll tell you, I was floored. I saw, I met her with you um, in one of the after parties or something, and I hadn't seen the film. I saw the film a couple days later, and I was it's it was by far the best short I saw. It might even be the best film 
in general, including features that I saw at that film festival. That oh, year. wow. Yeah. It, it, it kept you in and the style, and I don't know if we're doing teasers or, I mean, spoilers or anything here, but the style that it was shot from behind for the yeah. majority of the, it was, it was awesome. It was the right approach and it was very good. Yeah. Wow. Right. A great so, twofer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, and, and I, I follow her on Instagram and, and, and I, you know, I keep up with what she's doing and, and I hope I get to see more of her soon. Cause I got to tell you those she's young or well, at least she's, she appeared young, but to me, yeah. at our age, everyone's young, right? <laughs> Everyone's 18, and then they find out they're 30, and you're like, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah. Speak for well, yourself. <laughs> I'm, I'm only 25. Uh, yeah. Hey, I'm as old as my next baby, so I have a nine-month-old. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, there yeah, you go. Yeah, the, the constant baby backgrounds in our Screen Heat podcast, because yeah, we're, st- we're still... All, yeah, all we all have little ones, so... Producing content and hey, producing I'll, babies. I'll add quickly, in a minute, my Paul Haggis story with a you baby. Have, you have a, a, Paul, a Paul Haggis story? Yes, I was actually on a Zoom with him and a few other people, and I was couldn't get the damn thing to mute and no joke my baby is like a t-rex back there she is losing it and i haven't even gotten a chance to introduce myself to him and he immediately he's just sitting there and he, he went all right so who's the one with the baby <laughs> I, can't, I can't mute it i'm sorry so my introduction to paul was literally the guy with the baby who could not stop yelling in the background he's and, like that i uh, know him actually i so spent funny. maybe like um Two weeks with him in Haiti. Oh, really? So, wow. yeah, yeah. We went to Cite du Soleil, um, Wharf City, uh, Jack Mel. It was awesome. me. Well, not me. I was on the trip. But uh, Paul Haggis, Madeline Stowe, Diane Lane, Maria oh. Bello, um, Breen Mooser, who's a pretty big documentary guy, mm-hmm. you know, nominated for uh, Documentary Academy Awards and stuff like that. Yeah. And Paul Haggis. And he was super cool, but also, you know, very frank and direct. So Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. Man. And, and <laughs> in part of this conversation I had with him, he was saying things that I, I would have never thought somebody would say because of, especially today with the cancel, cancel culture and you're kind of worried with what comes out of your mouth. He was blunt, man. He was like, yeah. this is who I am. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I don't, he didn't hold back, but on the same way, uh, and he had a reason to feel this way. And he's learned from that feeling as well. So it's yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's very, very, you know, he's very deep. That's for sure. Yeah. And a great writer and yeah. a multi Academy award winner. Yeah. So, um, we are going gonna... to, and he was also an entourage, which I loved by the way, his cameos there were spectacular. Oh, oh really? Okay. I missed that. <laughs> yeah. You got to go back and watch that. Okay. Um, so, wow. We got, a, we got a lot of, we got a lot out of just that one little snippet of, of being in high school drama class with Jr. and, uh, his time in detention. <laughs> Thanks, Jr. Yeah, With Paul Tay. I'll, I'll be, you know, let me know if you need me to, for another five-minute fill. Right. Well, well, maybe now we have to invite Paul back to to answer Jr. And then we'll just keep going back and forth, playing like virtual ping pong on screen here. Yep. There you go. Both both Pauls, Paul Haggis and Paul Tay. Yeah. There you go. All right, guys. Thanks, Jr. Right. Yep. Thank you, Jr. See you later. So, so moving along, we talked about Academy Awards with Paul Haggis, but there are awards going on. We brought them up last week, the Golden Globes. There is quite a bit of diversity in the Golden Globes, but there are 
a lot of bristlings when you actually look and take a deeper dive. Hmm. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I did want to talk about some of the standouts of 2020. Mm-hmm. Some of the films and television shows that were talked about and some of the ones that I loved from 2020. I'm going to start off with Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. And this is a snub, actually. I think in the Golden Globes, and a lot of people talked about it too, Delroy Lindo from The Five Bloods. That was one of my favorite performances of 2020, but it was one of my favorite performances. It was definitely my favorite Delroy Lindo performances. Right. One of my favorite performances in film. It right. is an extraordinary tour de force. Um, no nomination for him in the Golden Globes. Of course, the Golden Globes are not necessarily a precursor to the Oscars, but there is a lot of Oscar buzz for Delroy Lindo. Four to Five Bloods and The Five Bloods in general. One of my favorite films of 2020. David Makes Man, we have to give our hometown hero a shout out. Um, the first season is a Peabody Award winner amongst many, many other awards. But you can go back and listen to Terrell Alva McCraney and his podcast episode. I believe it's our 23rd podcast episode. So go back and take a listen. But David Makes Man, both JL and I went to the premiere of the first episode here in Miami. And boy, it just is stellar. Oh yeah, and it was yeah, it was a beautiful event at the Perez Art Museum, and and what a great way to launch that series, uh, which has been spectacular in terms of really really giving uh, not only the sort of the, the black experience in magnet schools in Miami Dade, but really making this Universal Studio about this story about this you know young kid with so much talent, but you know unfortunately grow up in the wrong part of town, and just really trying to make something of himself uh, and everything that comes with that. Obviously, a lot of it personal to Terrell being sort of a protege from these sort of suburban Miami neighborhoods and, and making something of himself, which going back to the whole reason for the season, as they say, you know, Black History Month, but also honoring all these artists that have come so far, particularly since the, the big Oscar So White campaign and what we've yeah. seen since then, right? You know, starting with obviously Moonlight, which won Best Picture, and then now seeing the steamroll effect, you know, hitting not only film, television, streaming with all these amazing filmmakers, producers, artists of color, that are really, really getting to the highest levels, not only critically, but from an audience acceptance as well, because they're doing really big numbers. Yeah. I mean, David Makes Man is going to go on to its second season on HBO, actually. HBO Max. So, yeah. yeah HBO screen. Max. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm excited about that. But we have to also give this. It's hometown in a way. They didn't shoot it here, unfortunately. But uh, one night in Miami, we talked about it last week. Regina King's directorial debut, she was nominated for One Night in Miami. Um, So we're really, really uh, proud of that. Uh, We wish it was shot here actually in Miami, but that movie for me was one of my favorites of 2020. Super powerful. It came from a play. You can feel a little bit of that within it, Tennessee Williams. Um, You could feel a little bit of that within the play, but 
you know, it's so expansive. She's, she expanded on it and, and really made it her own. Uh, I want to talk about two shows in tandem, Lupin and Bridgerton. And the reason why I'm oh, yeah. talking about them in tandem is because they're all, they've been neck and neck as the top streamers for Netflix. They're very different shows. But what's interesting about both of them is they break down barriers. Bridgerton, which is a period piece, um, you know, within that particular genre, it really uh, blurred the lines between what's thought of as traditionally acceptable for that genre and really crushed so many tropes, especially, you know, being that top show for Netflix. And that was great coming off of the Shonda Rhimes imprint. That was her first uh, off of that 300 that historic $300 million deal. Um, a couple of people got that at the same time. So, right. you know, you're really proud about that. But Lupin, yeah. which is a French, it's a French Netflix original. So it's in, 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 French, in, in French, Um, also broke down a lot of those walls and barriers because here you have your lead anti-hero character um, that is not your, that has not been, you know, the traditional type of uh, lead because anti-hero, I'm not just saying because he's black, but you know, um, and that really crushed records, especially being a foreign language. You can listen to it in English with um, voiceover, I guess, you, what do you call it? Dubbed. You can listen into the English and dub, but the dub just sounds weird. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of original language and, and just kind of really understanding the uh, just kind of where we are in terms of of really, you know, we, we talked a little bit at the top of the hour about the actors, right, and the performance and the nuance in how you say something, not just what you're saying, but how you say it. And some of that, and there are some amazing dub artists out there, but it's hard to translate cultures and language exactly yeah. the same way. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm always a big fan of re- listening in the original audio with the subtitles if you have to. Uh, and you'll eventually pick up on it. There's a rhythm to yeah. watching you. Know, we go to a lot of film festivals, so we're used to that. S'il vous plaît. But but yeah, no, and I wanted to go back to Regina King for a second because there was a great yeah. article actually in uh, Variety. Uh, Kemp Powers, who wrote the original stage play uh, and is a big fan of Regina King, saying – you know, that really she deserves a medal just for being able to pull this movie off as a director. And and it's very subtle what she does, but it was very difficult because, again, based on a stage play similar to Moonlight, actually, which was also based on Terrell's play uh, and the way that she was able to pull that off. And Ken Powers, who also co-directed Soul, by the way, uh, the big Disney Plus uh, said that she just blew out of the water and she could be. And let's see when the Oscar nominations come out, the first African-American female director to ever be nominated for an Oscar in that category, which yeah. would be incredible. Yeah, and we have to go back to Ken Powers. He co-wrote and co-directed Soul. And right. later in, in, in his career, you know, he's 47 when he did both of these, both the play and, and with Soul. And so mm. he's the first Black um, director, he's the co-director um, of a Pixar film. So... right. Right. That's a big one coming from from 2020. Uh, I'm going to move a little bit faster uh, so we can get to this interview. But Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country was one of my favorites and it broke barriers. It was one of HBO's most watched shows. 
It was one of my favorite shows from HBO, period. And it's in a genre that's one of my favorite genres, which would be, I include these all in the same comic, sci-fi, horror, you know, these are all sort of, they're, they're niche, but not really because comic, you know, those are the biggest um, in terms of box office numbers, but uh, you know, it really broke down barriers. So stellar performances. And we're going to talk about how, although Lovecraft country was nominated in the golden globes, there was a lot of snub uh, within you know, the other categories of that particular film. I want to move on to one of my favorite directors, Christopher Nolan with Tenet, John David Washington, his first black lead. And he really took the bull by the horns and carried it like a leading man can and should. His and father, like the son of the multi-Oscar winner. <laughs> I was about to say, his father being one of the biggest leading men of uh, uh, for Hollywood of all time. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't want to mention his name, you know, because, you know, you want them to kind of stand alone. Uh, but, well, you know, when right. you have someone of that big stature, uh, Denzel Washington, you want right. to uh, make that note. But John David Washington certainly has become such a breakout star. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I, I put I put him, the father, in the same category as Oprah. You don't even have to say his last name. It's like Denzel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there is. You, I mean, you can say it, but everyone knows when you say Denzel, it's Denzel. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, t- both Tenet and WandaVision are uh, 2021, but I wanted to bring up WandaVision because uh, Tiona Paris, who really, really has uh, redefined what... Uh, this particular and this genre and these types of characters are she's done such a tremendous job of course i'm not um you know a judge on anything within the television category so this is still going on i haven't seen the the other episodes to come but what i've seen so far she's really just done a stellar stellar job i did want to mention one other show and I wanted to kind of leave it here at, at the end. I didn't bring this up to you, JL, uh, because I was going to bring it up in the Golden Globes portion. But there's a show called I May Destroy You, which was one of the most critically acclaimed shows of last year and the year before last. No noms for Golden Globes. So, but, you know, this is one that is at the top of every critic's list. No noms for the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes did make some inroads, and we'll talk about that after the jump. Um, but there's one last thing that I think could be awesome that we could jump into before we get to Miss Alicia K. Harris, which is one of my favorite actresses, Zoe Saldana. Oh, yeah. Zoe. So she uh, apparently just made a big announcement for a brand new uh, Netflix movie uh, by the Russo brothers, you know, talking about that Marvel universe. Right. And so this is going to be super interesting because she's going to be playing uh, battling pirates in the 1800s in the Caribbean. Uh, Frank Flowers will be directing now. uh, uh, Some folks may remember that in the earlier part of Zoe's career, she was also part of the 
Pirates of the Caribbean franchise over at Disney. And something that you thought we were going to see more of her character, but mysteriously, they just never brought her back. Uh, and now that this new movie uh, was announced, she did spill a little bit of tea that she did not have the best experience on the set of the of the Disney film, unfortunately. And she said nothing to do with the actors that talent there that was all great but apparently there was some sort of uh, elitist behavior between i guess the high level producers of the film and some of the talent and particularly the below the line artists as well and crew that she did not uh, find too appealing and so she just uh, also said she chose not to come back for future editions so there you oh, go oh she chose not to come back she yeah, wow. yeah. i mean that's yeah yeah it's uh, you know they they did write about it you know in some of the trades uh, and just kind of like why she decided, you know, kind of not to come back to that one. Uh, but but yeah, she's you know, she is a huge star right now. And, you know, she is probably she is considered the highest box office female star, I think, in history, because if you look at the films that she's been a part of from Star Trek uh, to the Marvel movies, Guardians of the Galaxy, all the Avengers yeah, films. Pirates of the Caribbean, Avatar. Avatar. I mean, she is just one box office. That's the hit. top 10 list. All those are the top 10. Wow. She's in all of them. She's like the $7 billion woman or something yeah. in Hollywood. And so it's very interesting that this news is coming out now. And she is going back to sort of that pirate world of uh, the Caribbean, obviously very close to Miami and to our hearts, these Caribbean stories, since we're technically a part of it. Uh, and, and I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be really awesome, especially with her and the Russo brothers involved. Her sisters, uh, Marielle and Cicely, are also producers on it. Uh, I've had uh, Cicely on MMFM Digital as well. She's just a darling. She's such an amazing producer in her own right. And so I'm, I'm excited for them. Well, we're going to have to get both of them or one of them on Screen Heat. We'll make it happen. I am yeah. sure we will. Yeah, I'm a huge uh, Zoe fan. And, you know, that's a lot <laughs> that she chose not to come back to the Pirates of the Caribbean. I remember her part. It wasn't a small part. It was actually, right. you know, a pretty meaty role. Right. So and definitely meaty enough to mm. appear in right. future uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. So, right. You know, yeah. well, that, that, you know what? She's done well. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I was going to say. That says a lot about choosing your own path. So, but I am happy that Alicia K. Harris uh, crossed my path there at the Miami Film Festival. So without further ado, I give you Alicia K. Harris. We can just keep rolling with one of my favorite filmmakers, Alicia K. Harris. Um, you know, I, I can't, I'm through the roof, through the ceiling on this one, because this is a, a much anticipated, long coming interview. I was first introduced to Alicia by her film, Pick, which won the Miami Film Festival, the best short category for 2020. And since I'm a judge, and I've been a judge for the Miami Film Festival shorts for 10 years, I already knew and I thought, well, it wasn't a fight because, you know, usually there's 12 films or 13 films that are selected, but it always boils down to the last three. And mm. so we went back and forth with the last three. We eliminated one. There was two. And there's always 
people in one camp and people in the other camp, everyone loved your film. Everyone absolutely loved your film. And so I think that that was the bigger part of the fight, you know, um, mm -hmm. people are going to champion one thing or the other. And um, totally. as I told you, this was something that was really near and dear to my heart because, you know, I'm a, I'm a single, I was a single dad and uh, your film, which is actually about, I don't want to say Afrocentric hair per se. I really look at hair in categories. So, you know, either you have hair that is, you know, curlier than other hair. And there's also an axis of, you know, whether your hair is more oily or less oily. So when you look at hair that way, which I've had to look at hair that way because my daughter has um, more Afrocentric hair, having to do my daughter's hair every morning before going to school, uh, sometimes it would be easy and sometimes it would not be. And I would just, you know, end up braiding it, you know, parting in the middle and braiding it. But I always wanted to celebrate the beauty of her hair. So to mm -hmm. see her film, it really touched a nerve because mm. that was a daily routine for me, five days a week. And yeah, and it's a big routine. Like it takes even now doing my own hair, like it takes a lot of time and care. And I think sometimes that time can also create a feeling of negativity. Like I find myself now as an adult, you know, trying to look at the time that I have to spend with my hair as not like I exactly that word. I have to do this. Oh my gosh. Now I have to detangle. I have to wash. Oh, it's going to take so long. I, I try to see it as like, well, my hair is a part of me and I love myself. So this is a time that I'm setting aside to love myself by taking care of it. And, you know, I think, that is a big change that I went through, even with making pick, like I made the film about a former self, as in like me as a child dealing with, I would say everybody's opinions around me. Um, maybe not as directly as what is in the film, but like the world's opinions about my Afro hair that I had absorbed throughout the years and the lack of like representation I had seen that was positive about my hair um, to where I am now, which is like, I have my natural hair back, but I wouldn't have been able to make that choice if I hadn't have made this film and really analyzed why I was changing my hair to begin with. So right. it's an interesting process. Um, and it's, it, I, I really do love that you gave me this little insight of like the behind the scenes deliberations, because I always try to understand when I feel we didn't get into a festival or we didn't get something that I thought we should have deserved, like we should have had. I, I try to understand, like, I wonder what the decisions were, but for this, it's honestly to me as simple as if there was not a black person in the room who could really understand the greater significance of the film, then I do find sometimes it's not as understood. And I've heard the exact same thing that you said. There was a black woman who was on a panel of a festival and she personally reached out to me and said, there was too many white women who didn't get the film. So unfortunately I like really tried, but they didn't get it. And I, I think honestly I think I did a good job of still making I think the film has an impact whether you're black or white I do think the film tells a story that is understood and in the 10 minutes I think I really did communicate something and teach 
people something. And I do also get that feedback. People saying, I didn't realize this is what black women are going through. I didn't realize this was a thing, but I think the larger significance that this is years and years of like hair discrimination. This is like the context is not necessarily understood by other people. And I, it was nice that like, you know, you said you fought for the film because I wish there was more black people in these rooms. Cause then maybe I would have gotten into Sundance. Maybe I would have gotten into these other festivals, um, but whatever. I'm like, I go where the love is, you know and Miami was so much love and the love of when we met of you with the film was just like, I will never forget that moment. It was so special. That's <laughs> uh, great. Um, don't get me wrong. Everyone loved the film, you know, because not only was it heartfelt, it was very well crafted. And so Thank there's, you. you know, different levels that we all look at in, in terms of how we um, judge the films. And so your film in particular hit a lot of the different markers you know, from creativity to the technical part of it. The heart and soul, you know, was, I think, one of the big things, too. Um, mm. They're pretty fair and judicious at the Miami Film Festival. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I judge three festivals a year. So all three mm. of them have different parameters of how they, you know, go about judging the films. The Miami Film Festival is more hands-on. You know, we mm-hmm. watch the films in the theater and, you know, really have a Ooh. Oh, that's proper. <laughs> and, and, and attest to the executive director, Jay LaPlante, he loves short films. I'm not going to say it's his favorite category because <laughs> I can't speak. I love Jay. One of his favorites. And uh, I met Jay when he was programming for the Miami Short Film Festival. And so, oh, cool. We actually played that with our first film like a while back. So that's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Never I just got had to go though. Film in the Miami Short Film Festival. I have a, a film that's going, doing the festivals right now. It's doing quite well. Oh, yay. But, yeah. But this is not about me. It's all about you. <laughs> so, um, so that is a category that Jay loves. And so we have very strong dialogue about the films. And it's a category that, you know, they throw a lot of different genres into that category all at the same time. So you have animated, you have documentary, you have, um, you know, narrative. And so you're making choices between these categories. And for yours in particular, I'm <laughs> lifting the veil, but it was last year, there was an animated film and then it was your film. I kind of boiled down to that. And another narrative film that boiled down to the last three. So then you're making decisions about right. esoterics and messages. And I really love the fact that then it boils down to the story. And so yes. super strong story. And we're talking about stories. We usually start with the filmmaker's story. So we're going to mm. have to go backwards and then we'll catch back up because I want to hear um, a little bit about the production of that film and the production of uh, your other projects because you're a multi-hyphenated director. You <laughs> direct many different things, documentary, so commercial stuff, you know, narrative. And so we're going to talk about all that, but let's talk about what makes you, you, what has made you a filmmaker, the filmmaker that you are now, where were you? Mm-hmm. Where, well, we know where you're from. We already said it. I was going to say, I, how far do you want wanna... me to go back? So I was born <laughs> on, <laughs> um, yeah. Birthplace well, is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was born in Scarborough, Ontario, which is in Toronto. And many people might have 
heard of Scarborough as the weekend is from there and the weekend just played the Super Bowl and it was kind of a really big deal for us because it, it's like a little suburb. Well, it's not little, but it's a suburb in Toronto and um, that's where I'm from. And that's where I still am. Very proud to be from here. And I mean, it definitely did inspire, I would say, my imagination because where I live is very, um, it's the suburbs, but there's tons of nature and ravines. And I think when I was younger, I was always like exploring and being imaginative in, cause I was free to do it. I could just go out, you know, on my own with my bike, do whatever. And I think that really like fostered a sense of like curiosity in me. And then I think my, I mean, my earliest loves w- were music and art as a whole. Like I was always very artistic and I think I went through maybe a drawing and painting phase, but music was always a really big piece for me. And I almost feel like I don't know what it was, probably stage fright. I never could really get legs for that. Like I loved singing. I loved music, but it just, there, there wasn't any sort of um, train behind me doing it. And then when I went to high school, I started to direct plays because it was like just something to kind of do in drama class. And then I, I started to see, oh, this is how it feels to like have a story, communicate it, have actors, have you write it, have lighting, all those things come together. And that was the first time that I could really see telling a story in a full way because like I had made little videos and stuff like that but it wasn't the same as having an entire production like that felt like a production and I what I really liked about it 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 was it was combining so many arts like it was combining music it was combining fine art with the sets it was combining lighting It it was so many things all in one and I think I mean my love for film I would say just started from a love of music art storytelling and then that eventually evolved into okay film seems like a a cool way to take all of these art forms and loves and do it in one place so that was the beginning (laughs) and then I went to film school at Ryerson University and then then I kind of discovered my like greater mission which was um okay I have unique stories about myself that I would like to share that I think are going to you know on a larger scale, fill in the gaps that I feel like I, I'm making movies I wish I saw as a child. And that was a mission I didn't really kind of come to until I was actually in school. And I was watching movies that I was like, well, these aren't really representative of me. Oh, look at all the masters. These aren't representative of me. And I think it's, it's, um, it's, it wasn't obvious to me that everything I had grown up with wasn't me. I think I just had had it for my whole life for 20 years or however old I was. And I was like, oh, wait, all I've been watching is like these white guy comedies. And like, look, those comedies are great. But I had realized like, where's the black woman comedies, you know? And that was something I, that was really obvious in film school. Um, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. a short version. <laughs> that's the version that we need. That's the version we look for here at Screen Heat Miami, um, which is, you know, the path that has taken... The long version. Yeah, for, yeah, t- taken <laughs> the filmmaker or what have you to where they're at. We interviewed yeah. uh, for our, our latest episode that just came out today, this multi-hyphenated actor, producer, writer, director, uh, Paul Tay, who started in the theater first. So he started first as an actor in the theater, and then he started directing theater 
And then that's what led mm. to what his path is now is, you know, directing films. So, and he's a pretty, yeah. you know, it's, he's, it, he's been in some pretty big things as an actor, but, you know. There, there's the adage, you know, they say that we, we don't know where we're going unless we learn where we're from. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's great. Um, and so um, we're going we're going to catch up to you from where you are at film school and you feel like there's a void. Mm-hmm. It, is, is that right? There's a void in um, the type of stories yes. that, that you want to see. Yeah. So at the time, uh, so I was in my third year out of a four year program and, you know, the whole program is culminating with a thesis film that you're going to do. That's kind of like your calling card, like your big piece. And I, in third year was already starting to think about what that thesis film was going to be. And I was like, I'm going to do like a coming of age comedy. I loved eighties movies at the time. And I was going to do like three boys going to be this funny they're going to find a like playboy magazine they're going to steal it and you know it's going to be like so great and so I was already kind of dreaming up this concept for my next year I went to this women in film panel that was like the first ever panel that my school was doing where they were bringing in women in the industry to talk about their experiences and at the time you know the program was half women Um, I wasn't really paying attention again to the fact that like, oh, everything I had consumed wasn't really, you know, my own voice or perspective. And until I saw that panel and it was like, here's hard statistics, here's women saying like the struggles that they had gone through and, and most overcome, but you know, things they were still going through. I was like, oh my gosh, like it was like, it, it just like hit me in the face. And I was like, wait a minute every all of my favorite filmmakers everything I've been watching what did I watch as a kid and I really just like went down like this hole of being like oh my gosh like I've even even, look at what I'm writing I'm writing from the perspective of like what I think is the most marketable person like a white man a white boy like I was so I would say I don't even want to say brainwashed but I think just like all of this you know, the image that I had seen of like default funny person was like a guy. So I was like, oh, well, I'm writing a comedy. So it's got to be like a funny little kid. That's a white guy. And, you know, that that's really deep because like, I'm not gonna be too mad at myself because I was like, well, if I had years of consuming this, it's not crazy that that's kind of what I wrote. But now it seems insane that I was writing instead of writing myself, I was writing almost characters that I had seen. Um, So that was a really big turning point for me. And after going to that panel, I, the next year, made a thesis film that was about three girls who find a Playgirl magazine. And, you know, I wrote, I would say, not, uh, it wasn't like completely new in the sense that, yes, we've seen like, you know, in Stand By Me, The Goonies, like this classic bunch of guys in the 80s. I just wrote my own childhood into the film and it made it obviously way better because I was writing jokes that were more personal to me that just rang more true. And, um, you know, and we never see, we never get to, when I was a kid, are you kidding me? Other than Degrassi, which is like a very famous Canadian show that I hope 
some of you might know because Drake started Drake off. Drake was there. on it, right? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a very famous Canadian coming of age show um, that shows real like everything you could think of teen pregnancy adolescence puberty periods everything you could think of is in the show but i didn't have anything other than that like there was nothing that made girls just feel like we could even think or talk about periods or anything so this film was just unapologetically being that and i had so much fun making it and i would say it was just it was the beginning of what i me realizing wow, it's so much fun to make something that is doing something new and different and filling in a gap. And I could see how excited people were about the film because of that. Um, and I think that's one of the main reasons why it was successful. And like like Pick, we did you know a Kickstarter campaign for it and people rallying behind a film simply because they're like, oh, wow, I've never seen this. I want to see it. It does make this journey of being a filmmaker way more exciting because I'm not trying to make things that other people have already done. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of that other, and I, I do a lot of quotes as Kevin knows. In our specificity, we find our universality, so to speak. Yes. Uh, and, and I think that's the case, especially when you're a minority voice that, like you said, isn't well represented in the Hollywood mainstream. You know, to just kind of say, okay, let's take the same structure right of a rom-com or or mainstream film but make it about us and make it personal exactly yeah and i think you know one of my favorite actresses now Issa ray has picked up a mantle on that um probably you did your film before you know Issa ray uh, rose to her meteor meteoric stardom but there definitely needs to be oftentimes you, you you know you see one voice and it's so bright that it feels like, you know, this dynamic shift, but there's only one Issa Rae, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, and then, you know, there's others, but, um, you know, definitely there needs to be this kaleidoscope of different views and, diff and different voices. So, um, as I said before, you're multi-hyphenated. So there is, you know, this feeling about your work, very strong uh, feeling about your work. So I want to talk about the, your evolution. Again, you do music videos. Um, I've seen some commercial stuff of yours. So can you just talk to me a little bit about the storytelling process and, you know, how you choose your projects and, you know, some of the similarities and differences in uh, working in different genres. Yeah. I mean, for me, it all really started with just making my own films. And once I finished film school and had this film, it's called Love Stinks, by the way, and it is on my Vimeo that uh, you can watch. <laughs> um, it's public. Um, so once I did we'll that piece link on film, the website. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on your podcast. Okay, awesome. So yeah, everyone, I'll bring it back. It's a little bit of a throwback. But yes, it's I think it still holds up. Uh -huh. um, but anyways, I went after graduating film school and like traveling with Love Stinks, I obviously, my next, my sight was set on doing another film and that ended up being Pick and that took um, a couple of years to really get off the ground and get finished um, for many reasons. <laughs> One of which being raising money and the other being so many things in my life that were connecting with the film, kind of needing to take many breaks to get it done. But I'm super happy that we had all the time that we needed to make it happen. So 
in this time of like building pick and and everything i kind of had always been interested of course in doing other things like music videos or you know other work it just didn't really manifest and um like i had pitched on music videos for example and things like that but the how i kind of got into doing other things i would say was the years of making pick i had been making connections and you know meeting people and producers um and then once pick had reached a point of success where it was very well known um and especially like in canada winning a canadian screen award which is like our oscars was a very big piece of exposure for me that i think um gave me I guess more clout <laughs> in even though I was like doesn't the film speak for itself I think it did it did put me on the map in in another way um That's and winning big. the Miami film festival Yeah let's take a yeah. pause for that <laughs> on the Canadian Oscar Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and that ceremony was also canceled, but still special. Um, but yeah, <laughs> still so, you want new, you know. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that uh I think helped at least give us some more exposure. And then I just had um a friend who has have friends who have a music video company and they said we have a it was you know quarantine black lives matter movement research mainstream media resurgence and they said do you want to pitch on this coffee music video and i said yes and i had not done a music video before. I was like, this is a huge artist. I'm shocked. What? Um, but like, I'm so glad, I'm so excited to be able to pitch on this. And the video was going to be about Black Lives Matter. And I think this um, go answers the question, how my pieces like I'm just trying to make stuff that's meaningful and sometimes it hits the nose of exactly what I'm trying to do like this hit the nose like yes this is exactly I'm trying to make work that's about black people I'm trying to make work that is important that's impactful that's telling stories that are you know respectful but still meaningful and powerful and when this kind of just fell into my lap and I pitched on the job without having any music video experience but I had the best idea won the job made the music video I, you know, it was kind of just like the divine connections and timing of that coming to be. It's not like I had set out and said, I'm looking to do a music video or something. Um, and I'm really proud of that project because I think for me and being a narrative filmmaker, and I think my producers were also like, Alicia, maybe you're overthinking some of these things. Like I couldn't just look at it as like, oh, it's just a music video and cool images. Like I was like, every single thing has to have 10 deeper meanings. And, you know, I really think so much about the story. And I think if you do watch a lot of music videos nowadays, especially there's like a really big oversaturation because, you know, anyone can kind of make one. It's not the same, which is great. But I think a lot of music videos are just like cool images and it's not necessarily memorable in the way that when we think about music videos in the 2000s or 90s, they were like feature films in a music video. Like they were memorable. They were high production value memorable stuff and I think I always want to make sure yes the aesthetic is right but the story is right and I think that comes through in all of my work across mediums um like I made a documentary for Lush um the beauty brand about black hair um about their black hair products and people's hair journeys and I think also for that it's like yes the characters are telling their story and bringing their own perspectives to it um 
which is amazing. Like I obviously like can't take the credit for the amazing things that they shared and the vulnerability that they shared. But the way that I crafted my documentary, I would say is like with very narrative sensibilities, like the style is there. It's not like, you know, a newsreel type of thing. Colors are very distinct. It doesn't look like we just showed up to people's houses and filmed them kind of thing. Like it's very crafted. Um, But I would say, but not in a way where you watch it and you're like, this feels fake. (laughs) Like it's crafted, but it still feels like, oh, wow, we're getting an intimate, beautiful moment. Um, So I think I'm really just trying to like make work about Black people that's beautiful. And as a whole, I am really just trying to tell stories that haven't been told. And of course that can expand further than obviously just my own perspective as a Black woman and capturing Black perspectives. But for my own pieces, that's basically what I've been focusing on the most because that's what I care about right now and that's what I'm trying to do but of course like you know I'm there's a lot of marginalized groups that I'm a part of (laughs) intersectionally that I care about that I'm trying to um, promote and celebrate in my work yeah I mean I I have to say I saw a little bit of the process of coffee um, when you pop up in my Instagram feed and you know, I was looking at the process of the set design and you really shared a lot of that process. And so I was really excited to actually see the music video and see the finished product, being a producer, writer, director myself um, and understanding that process from the head to the minute you see it on the screen. So I want to talk a little bit about process and, you know, in Coffee, for example, which is one of your projects that I actually saw a lot of the process from set design to costume design. I loved seeing the process on your Instagram of the set design, the costume design, the themes. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I love the process. Like, I love this quote that's like, uh, once the film is done, all the filmmaker has left is the process because at that point it belongs to the audience. That's not the most poetic way of putting it, but you get it. It was more poetic when I heard it, but basically just that, you know, we have the process and when it's done, like it does, it just, it's not ours anymore. It belongs to the viewers. And I really do like that because, um, first of all, the process is very important to me and that I want it to be like an enjoyable experience for everybody involved. And I think too many times in film, it's like the ends justify the means. Like there's so many horrible, abusive directors that just, I just don't respect, but people teach it. But like, oh, they did this horrible thing, but they got great performances. It's like, no, I don't want that. Like, I think film for me is very much having great relationships with my collaborators. And I am very, very visual, collaborative director so um my favorite thing of the process is i'll usually have a i call it the bible i'm this is i'm sure other people do this too but you know i have a giant (laughs) document of my original treatment my original visual ideas that i had especially like for that coffee piece and then i will have pages for each going into deeper into each reference like each um uh section cinematography costumes production design and then obviously my collaborators will add to it um so I think the process for me the most fun is hearing the opinions of my key creatives because 
at that point, if I've done it, let's say a music video pitch, I've already worked so much by myself on what is the production design? What is the cinematography, you know, overviews, like what are my initial ideas? Well, first of all, what is the main concept and how, what is the main message and how are these other tools supporting the message? Like that is what I've figured out. And because I did used to do production design, usually uh, like with the coffee video, I was like, there's going to be 50 chairs in a field and that's going to represent this, this, you know, it's going to represent like the audience watching. It's going to represent like this space where, you know, black people are ending up like, you know, you could watch the video and think you have your own interpretation, but I, you know, thought, well, you know, how can I use space to tell a story, especially in a time where I was also tasked with like, it was COVID having to shoot outside and having to really like make this a manageable production. And I really thought about space a lot for that. How can I use the space to tell the story? Um, but with the process, like I, so for example, everybody's wearing red, like I, went into it saying everybody's going to wear one color. And it was actually my costume designer that said like, you know, red is such a bold choice that would stand out in this field. And it could also represent so many things. Like it could represent love. It could represent anger. And, you know, I think I actually wanted to do white. And then she said, what about red? And I was like, well, it's red, you know, and she pulled a reference and I was like, yeah, it's got to be red. So, you know, there's so many. And then, you know, I tend to be a little bit more picturesque and static with my thoughts. I think I think very painterly. So I'm not always thinking about camera movement. And I don't remember who it su- who suggested it, it might have been my DP or the producers were like, why don't we get a jib that we can, you know, have moving like through this space and get a really grand wide shot of all of this. And you know, I think like that's my favorite part of the process is like I had the idea, but everybody is elevating the idea so far beyond and just thinking in ways that I don't think like I do think about everything, but I don't I'm not the expert in everything. You know, that's yeah. why I have these experts that I work with that add so much. And that's definitely my favorite part. Yeah, it's a collaborative process. And that's what I love about the industry, about filmmaking and content creating is you know if you are the producer you know writer director director producer um you're coming in with a concept and then you're collaborating with other people towards a unified vision and so hopefully the people that you collaborate with are connected with the vision so that final outcome uh kind of connects with what you want I did meet your uh, other producer of Pick, and mm. you know, love her. Uh, yes, we we'll have to Rebecca. follow up with her. But um, you know, I could feel this connection between the two of you uh, there at the Miami Film Festival. So um, this whole collaboration, yeah. collaborative part, is uh, essential. So um, can you talk a little bit about what you have coming up? Um, what you are aiming for uh, in the future, your trajectory of your career. And, um, you know, you've already accomplished a lot, but um, can you talk about, uh, you know, what's happening moving forward? Yeah. Well, I mean, what I have coming up in general is, you know, I'm finally a working director. So I'm, you know, directing 
directing TV, directing commercials. I have agents in both of those places. And that's kind of helping me actually make this a sustainable life, which is a honestly a new thing, which is amazing because I've been hustling, trying to make those things happen. Um, but in my own personal projects, I actually have, oh gosh, I guess three things happening and I'll give you a little bit about each thing. Um, so I have a spiritual successor to pick. Um, after I made pick, which as you've seen, it maybe, you know, doesn't have the happiest ending. I decided I didn't want that to be like the last thing I was saying about like black girlhood and identity and appearances. So I'm making a piece called on a Sunday at 11. And, um, it's a very poetic, um, narrative about a young black girl who is the only black girl in her ballet class. Um, but it's about the community and sisterhood between black women and how we're there for each other spiritually, ancestrally, you know, there's a connection that, that is there that even if we're the only one in the room, it's with us. So it's a very, um, stylistically, it's a kind of a magical realism piece where she, this character is really able to conjure this love, even when she's in these difficult moments. Um, and it's going to be super fun. I'm shooting it this summer and I'm really excited. Um, maybe it'll play in Miami, hopefully next year or something, <laughs> and we'll be able to watch it together. We hope so. Um, we hope so. Yes. So, yeah, so I'm working on that. And then I'm also working on another short that's about um, Black women uh, in childbirth and the racism that they experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think COVID has really also outlined that Black people's pain is not taken as seriously and Black people disproportionately are dying from COVID. Black people disproportionately die in childbirth, Black women. Um, so that's something that I've really wanted to cover. And I'm going to be making um, a documentary about that. And then I'm right now, like I think shooting in a couple weeks, um, going to be making a shorter piece that's celebrating Black ma black man's, a Black man's joy. Um, it's kind of an experimental really short narrative that's accompanied by a poem that's just about the freedom of just being in a bedroom and having this bedroom kind of be this sanctuary where there is no outside forces that are making you feel like you have to be a certain way and it's kind of just going to express vulnerability and how this is like you know I just want to put some positive images into the world to be honest like I'm so tired of these like police brutality things and like black period pieces where it's all just about black people suffering. And this piece is just going to be like, honestly, a black man being vulnerable and joyful in a room. And um, I'm super excited to make that. Cause I think like, we really need that right now. Like I'm tired. I'm tired of this yeah. other stuff. Well, I did talk like, about I, those filmmakers are going to make their things, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you have that, part of your canon and then you have this part of your canon so i did talk about a totally. kaleidoscope you know a mosaic which is absolutely necessary it can't just be you know one lane um mm -hmm. one thing that i didn't talk about was uh what are you loving right now what are some of your favorite films and we could say even overall Ooh. some of your favorite tv shows um you know what's yes. really you hitting your heart right now well for sure um, insecure. And I know that it's been a while, but I only just caught up with season four. 
So like maybe a, a month or two ago, um, and I just binged it. So I love Issa Rae. Like, I'm glad you mentioned her. I think we need more stuff like what she's making. Um, just black people. Yes, we deal with racism, but we also live normal lives. We have relationships, we have friendships, and I love Insecure. Um, for that reason, it's just showing like black life. Um, and then I also loved, I may destroy you Michaela Cole's, um, series. And, you know, again, yes, it's dealing with heavy topics, the heavy topic of rape and sexual assault, but it's also showing black life, like how this black woman is managing to get through this and her friendships and her relationships and her humor. Um, it's just so well done. And then I loved 40 year old version, um, <laughs> brought a blanks movie on Netflix. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, that's on my, it's in my queue. Yes, exactly. Um, I just loved it. Like again, yes, it deals with, you know, regular stuff that we deal with racism, this, but like, it's just how I could just describe it is like, it's just a 40 year old woman's life. It doesn't necessarily have this tradition structure of like you know she starts doing one thing and you think she's going to be doing that for the whole movie like but no it's like I think just a really interesting snapshot of a person and it clearly it was very autobiographical and I just really liked that like it just felt like an honest um piece about a place in this woman's life and it was funny and but still like had drama I loved it and she deserves all the um, recognition that she's been getting for it because it's been getting a lot of love and I'm really happy for her. Yeah, I'm, that's you know, a Netflix piece. I'm really happy to see Shonda Rhimes uh, really filling out her space. Number one show on Netflix, most streamed show with, uh, with Bridgerton. So we're loving that. Mm. Um, Avar DuVernay is, is really carving out a lot. So um, there are some movements but there definitely needs to be uh you know more voices so i'm really happy that your voice is one of the voices out there you're one of my favorite filmmakers so <laughs> um jl is Thank not you. Oh, <laughs> if you didn't do it well i'd like to thank you for doing great work um jl is not here for our cap we usually have a cap at the end which is um a two-pronged cap uh, if you could go back to when you kind of first started on this journey and give yourself some advice, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Ooh, that's so tough. Um, probably the same advice that I still give myself, which is just, you are worthy, you know, and that for me encompasses all of the insecurities that I had at the time, like, do I deserve this grant? You know, do I deserve these like 300 people funding my film? Do I, is anybody going to care about this film, about this little black girl going through a day at school of picture day? Like those were the things that I was really mainly that piece. Is anybody going to care or get this story? And I think just what I tell myself now and is one of like my daily affirmations, just I am worthy. Like I am worthy of sharing this story. Like I am worthy of people listening to it and 
earned and I'm worthy of all the success that has come along with the film. And that is something that I would tell myself because so much of, I think my fears and insecurities came from this feeling of the root feeling of just that my stories or my voice wasn't worthy of an audience. That's a, that's a heavy one, <laughs> but in, in, you know, amazing. Answer. I only bring the heaviness. <laughs> yeah, I, I expect nothing less. Um, so, um, and then the second part is related to the first part, which is what advice would you give to filmmakers that are, it can be filmmakers that are in the industry right now, but you know, people that are also trying to make their way into the industry. Mm. Um, I would say do what's most authentically you in the way that's most authentically you. <laughs> um, mainly because I think when we read directing books or go to film school or look at what other directors are doing, um, sure, like we're going to learn from them. But what we really recognize is that you just have to, and I'm not saying everybody has to tell their own story, but I, what I am saying is, if you're a writer director and you're writing feelings you've never experienced, they're probably not going to ring true. Like I could write a feel, I could write a movie about a dinosaur that is alone because I know what it feels like to be alone, you know? So, but, so it's like, it's not like you have to write exactly your thing, but I think write from the feelings that are the truest because that will give you the best story. Or if you're a director looking for a script, like look for something that has feelings that you can really connect to, because then you'll make the strongest work and you'll make something that will really feel authentic because as we've kind of gone over, yes, of course, the style, the crafting, all of that is so important. But at the end of the day, the story is going to be so memorable and all of the other tools are really there just to serve the story. And I would, the, the, the second piece of what I'm saying is just do it as yourself. I think so many times like extroverts are obviously very celebrated and do well in meeting people and in rooms. And that's really great. But if you're like a quiet person, like you can be a quiet director. Like I am actually a quiet person. I know that doesn't probably come through today, but I don't direct necessarily by like yelling across a room or, you know, I just do it as myself. And I think, you know, it seems like, oh my gosh, well, if I can't go up in front of, this is something I felt of, oh, it's going to be so hard for me to go up in front of this crowd and pitch this thing or meet these people. And I just did it as myself. Like if I go to Miami film festival, I won't meet everybody in the room. Like some people do, but I'll make a few strong connections with a few people. And that's just how I do it. So, and that's good enough for me. I'm like, yeah, that's my personality. So I would just say, do the things that are most authentically you because that will lead you to the right people, the right stories, the right inspiration. <laughs> that's a great, that's just kind of three parts, but that's um, great advice. And the first part was great advice as well. Even though it was advice to yourself, it could be advice to everyone. Um, we had a couple of fits and starts, but we have made it through. Um, this was a tremendous interview and a long time coming. Yay. My heart goes out to one of my favorite filmmakers, Alicia oh. K. Harris. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was honestly such an honor to reconnect, especially almost at the like one year of us meeting, which is so amazing at Miami. And um, yeah, thank you for your thoughtful questions. And it was really fun to chat. 
And we are back. That was an awesome interview. Yes, it was. Alicia, we talk man. about these journeys. That was a journey. Yeah. Journey and just, you know, such an interesting background being from this other little suburban town outside of Toronto and, you know, other talent, you know, she talked a little bit, uh, I think about the weekend, you know, the famous artist that just played the Super Bowl being from yeah. there. Uh, so much talent that comes out of Canada just in general, right? And what people you it? don't even think Jim Carrey and Dan Aykroyd, I keep thinking about those comedians uh, that came up through, you know, uh, they're all Canadian filmmakers, you know, we talked a little bit, Reitman and Ghostbusters and all that, they're all Canadians. Uh, One of my and favorite now, groups, Arcade Fire. From- yeah, yeah yeah and now we have alicia who's making a name for herself and just doing phenomenal work yeah yeah and i'm looking forward to seeing what she does in the future we did talk about what she has coming up mm-hmm. i've told her when i met her you know i'm ready to see your feature when you right. when we're going to see your feature so a- absolutely yeah that's yeah. definitely got to be the next step in her evolution for sure yeah and yep. so so yeah and so now we're we're going to get right back into the grindstone because it is black history month but as we know february january february is always award season uh everything's been a little pushed back of course due to the pandemic but we are now talking about the Golden Globes and everything that's going on there uh, in terms of, you know, not only some of what's going on in terms of their nominations and what's the usual kind of banter, but a little bit of behind the scenes drama as well with uh, the, the organization, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not all bad. You know, it's not all good. It's always a mixed bag. And so, you know, you're always happy when at least there's some representation. Uh, there were three women nominated for best director. So that's tremendous, including Re- Regina King. We talked about Regina King. Um, but, you know, when you talk about diversity, I think one of the big reasons why the Oscars was able to pivot is because I brought in, um, the head of the Academy for Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, here to Miami in conjunction with the Miami Film Festival about, uh, I want to say five years ago. And so it was me, her, the film festival director on stage. We talked about her storied career. And she went on to talk about how they opened up the Academy to bring in more membership. So when you do that, when you bring in more membership, diverse membership across the spectrum, whether it's not just color, but also the age spectrum, when you do that, that opens it up to bigger opportunities in terms of selection and bigger opportunities in in terms of, you know, what's going to be represented. And so you're seeing a lot of that result happening now. Takes time, but it happens. It was reported in two publications, uh, both uh, People and Variety, that the Hollywood Foreign Press, which is the organization that puts on the Golden Globes, that they don't have any Black members. So that presents oftentimes a little bit of a challenge when you talk about, you know, having this representation. Um, We'll see what happens there. They have 87 members, um, you know, and they keep it tight. And they also, they're also, you know, they have a structure where there's some monetary um, compensation that's involved too. So it's a, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a little bit different than other organizations. Um, And then they also get perks. I mean, one Mm. perk that they, 
that they, they were able to get is uh, there's a show called Emily in Paris. And they were all invited out on a junket by Paramount to um, have the Emily in Paris right. experience. Which was, I guess you could from say. From what we've read, quite the experience. <laughs> right. The state had a five-star a Paris hotel, $1,400 a night hotel. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the set visits and, you know, just kind of all the sort of um, razzle dazzle that comes with with courting the press, which is not unusual. Hollywood courts the press all the time. That's part of their the machinery of what keeps Hollywood going. Right. Is is the press and the buzz and the momentum of a particular artist or project. Uh, I think what what sort of they're being called out on is that, you know, sort of widespread, unfortunately, critically panning this show, Emily in Paris. And so it was kind of a surprise to a lot of the community and, and to the to the global press that that this film or the show was able to get two nominations for the Golden Globes. And now some folks are pointing back to that particular trip as a reason why. Uh, so so it's something that, you know, while also dealing with this bit of drama, also dealing with that sort of lack of diversity in the in sort of the voting side of the HFPA is something that I'm sure over time, like the Oscars and the Academy are going to have to address the issues and, you know, pivot or start to make, uh, you know, changes uh, internally to to correct it in the future. And I think that's really as far as it's going to go, because the Golden Globes is still a staple and it is one of the biggest, if not the biggest predictor of who will receive an Oscar nomination in many categories. And so it is an important part of this sort of Hollywood's Oscar season. Uh, and, you know, the fact that they brought back Ricky Gervais as host, you know, that I tip of the cap to that. He's <laughs> I know you love that. Hilarious. I love that guy. Yeah. Uh, and so so they're, they're a fun group. They seem like they have they like to have fun. And so. So, yeah, again, I think it's just going to be a little bit of uh, just massaging the organization in the future and 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 things will work themselves out. Let's see. Yeah. So, you know, on a on a, on a top note. They did uh, have some nominations of, of uh, you know, diversity. Viola Davis, Andrew Day, Riz Ahmed, Chadwick Boseman, posthumous. Mm, and that, yeah. what a tremendous performance he had in uh, Ma, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, Liz Manuel Miranda, Daniel, I always mess up his name, Kahuya, which is well-deserved. And Ann Taylor Joy, she wasn't nominated for, uh, she was nominated for Emma. She wasn't nominated for uh, The Queen's Gambit, but right. she identifies as Latina. So She does. Yeah, yeah. Her, she was, uh, you know, she has, I, I believe, some a family background on, I think it's her mom's side from Argentina. She, she uh, as we know, born in Miami, but she was raised in Argentina for a long time. She speaks fluent Spanish. Uh, and, and yeah, she's, uh, and that's what know, she identifies as. Absolutely. So that's, that's what she is. She's a, she's a Latina. Makes all the sense um, in the world. And, and then she's, I, Right. I say very talented as well, just in general, like, you know, the way that, you know, she's able to kind of take on these characters. I was I love the Queen's Gambit. I just thought that was such a brilliant performance. And uh, and it's, it's just yeah, she's incredible. I first noted her in Peaky Blinders, which is one of my favorite shows. It's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And she came in. I think it would have to be the fourth season. Right. Um, and you could f- see that gleam from that yeah. point. When she, when, whenever she would, 
you know, hit the screen. Um, it's her eyes, man. She has these eyes. It just, it's the eyes like, and like suck you, you in. They just really like, there's something about those orbs that you just, you can't like, you know, like her eyes are just mesmerizing, but you know, even beyond that, just brilliant, brilliantly talented yeah. actors. Yeah. So I did want to get back to, I talked about, I may destroy you, which again, it, it, it's not just that it was snubbed because it's a show that I really like. It's the top of every critic's list. So, you know, you want to see this repetition, you know, in terms of who is nominated and who wins these things. Um, I did speak about uh, Lovecraft Country, which was one of the most lauded shows of 2020. Journey Smollett really lit it up. She was on fire in that show. Um, Yeah. um, The lead actor on John... Ellis, who, I mean, he just did a leap, just yeah. a huge leap yeah. into that role. He wasn't really, really well-known, um, but to have that lead role and then just take that on his shoulders, he just really hit it out of the park. An always awesome Michael K. Williams. Uh, so, uh, you know, none of them were nominated. Yeah, you know, we were talking about, you know, a lot of these projects, you know, you mentioned michael k williams uh who also is known for he was actually a, a played a part in critical thinking which was shot here we had carla berkowitz on one of our previous podcasts for the john leguizamo movie uh yeah. that was shot here in miami that that michael played a, a very interesting uh father role in that as well so just so much talent across the board uh yeah. that i don't think it's enough to cover in one podcast <laughs> yeah. you know we can we can really just kind of expand on all this not just because it's black history month but really throughout the year because these these folks are just making tremendous things all year round yeah you know it was often said that there weren't enough vehicles for these stars to shine in and so a bright note is that there are more vehicles now and so Hmm. it's an equilibrium at the end of the day uh the globes you know they did a good job in a lot a lot of ways um there's still a lot of room to be made for Mm -hmm. i don't just want to say you know black people but for people of color but you know strides have been made and strides are are being made so that's a positive um you you mentioned ricky gervais coming back (laughs) so ricky even though he said it's the last time it's the last time every time (laughs) is the last time every time is the last time um so i'm looking forward to uh to seeing the show uh, the SAG Awards, which they, they announced their noms. I mean, that was pretty much spot on, but th- that's chosen by the actors themselves. Right. right. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this award season because of also what I said, there's more vehicles now, not mm-hmm. just for black people, but for people of color. I did want to make a mention. We, we, we said Black History Month, but um, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, which tremendous movie. It's it missed a bit in terms of this is this is Golden Globes in terms of the qualifications, because 50 percent of the movie has to be in English and a little under 50 percent is in English of that film. But what a brilliant, brilliant movie. Um, It was put in the foreign language category. And so, you know, there is this line now that we're talking about now that 
you know, content. I don't want to just say film. I don't want to say TV content has been democratized. And I would say Netflix is the chief generator of that and, and the chief lead of that happening hmm. because it has really made the marketplace more global. Uh, right. You saw Parasite win right. best right. picture in the Oscars yeah. last year. So, you know, we want to see what's going to happen with the changing tides and more representation. Mm-hmm. See, as the, years, see. As, the, as the years roll by. As the years roll by, but as always, Screen Heat Miami is always representing. So we want to thank all of you for taking a drive in our little vehicle known as Screen Heat Miami. Yes, indeed. And, uh, I have many more interviews coming up back to back. And uh, and we're going to see you on, on the next one, but it's going to be just as exciting Absolutely. each and every week. Yep. So I am Kevin Sharpley. I'm JL Martinez. And we will hear you next week. Dale. Boom.